So hello and welcome to Balcony Talks. I'm Margarida and today we have here Nigel Thurlow. Hello Nigel. Hey, hello, glad to be here. Thank you for being here also. We will talk about today Lean, Nimble and Fake Agile. But first, uh, let me introduce um, everyone to Nigel. So N- Nigel is an expert in organizational design, an author, speaker, uh, and he consults in business agility and transformation. He was the first chief of Agile at Toyota and now serves as CEO of the Flow Consortium, being a co-author of the Flow System. Um, the Flow Consortium, we will deepest dive on that, but it's a collection of companies in the Lean Agile sphere. Nigel is also a Forbes member and coach council where he advises several organizations. Is this correct? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary, Dana. Yeah, you made me sound really good. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Well, it's an honor to have you here, really. And um, can you tell us also a little bit about your B-side? So aside from work, what is that you like to do? Oh, wow. Wow. Well, I've just come <laughs> back from traveling for 28 days doing nothing but work, but I managed to fit in a little bit of fun while I was traveling. Yeah. Uh, Lisbon was one of those destinations, of course, where we uh, saw each other last. Um, but uh, I spend a lot of time in, in what's called vintage electronics. I do a lot of work in uh, tube or vacuum tube or valve, as the Brits would call it, electronics. I also uh, own seven motorcycles. so. Uh, I spend a lot of time playing with my motorcycles. Uh, they're probably the two things that keep me the busiest when I'm not actually working right now. Okay, okay, cool, cool. All right, that makes sense from someone that comes from the industry, right? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> like <machines>. possibly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so first topic that we wanted to cover um, is that if you could walk us through what is your extensive experience, specifically in Lean and in Toyota? Sure. I mean, I was very lucky. I joined Toyota back in the early 2000s. I'd come out of years of working in the electronics and the electrical industry and and spent a lot of time in the early computing industry uh, doing a lot of work on software development. I was a DBA for my sins at one time and uh, also doing a lot of work in the sort of network and installation of infrastructure um, in the early days. And I was a project manager. That was my uh, background. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, Toyota came calling or an opportunity came with Toyota. I was living in Belgium at the time and Toyota Motor Europe uh, invited me to come and do some work with them, uh, which was absolutely fantastic. But the first few days or weeks I was there, I threatened to resign every day because I thought these people were crazy. I had no idea how they even functioned because everything they did was a complete 180 degree difference to what everything I'd been trained and learned. And it took about six months for the penny to drop and for me to understand and grasp what is known as the Toyota way and the Toyota production system. Um, and then I got the best years of my professional training in my entire life. The years I spent at, at TME set me up for the rest of my career. And then if, when I did move to the USA, I left Toyota. This was when there was some recessionary things happening around 2009-2010. And so I left Toyota in Europe. I went to live in the US. My wife's American. So I went to live in the US and uh, didn't go back to Toyota. didn't go back to clean stuff, but went off uh, playing with the agile uh, uh, stuff uh, and working with uh, one of the creators of Scrum and spending a bunch of time in different companies. But what I discovered 
was the deep knowledge I had in the the Toyota way of doing things in what we call lean thinking, uh, mm -hmm. generically in the industry, actually had given me an incredible amount of knowledge that was directly relevant to the agile industry. And indeed, those people who were sort of key leading figures and voices in the agile world were very keen to learn from me and to learn what I knew, because a lot of what they'd created for Scrum, for example, was uh, predominantly based on Toyota practices and some other things, mm -hmm. but Toyota was a huge influence. Uh, and then I was invited back to Toyota as a consultant in the US, um, and that's where we were fortunate to create what we call Scrum the Toyota Way, which was a, a symbiotic bringing together of the Toyota production system and some of the agile ways of working and really to share the symbiosis and actually the the one was the source of the other anyway, but to show that symbiotic relationship. Um, and during my time then, I, I was invited back to, to rejoin Toyota as what we call a team member and was given the, the privilege of being the chief of Agile for Toyota Connected. Um, and then, of course, we went on to refine Scrum the Toyota way. And that's where I started to develop the flow system originally known as the Toyota Flow System, but latterly as the Flow System, uh, in partnership with the University of North Texas, my co-author, Professor Turner, and uh, my from the US Navy, Brian Ponch Rivera. Um, and I think that brings us more or less up to date. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for the ones who don't know, just taking a step back on what is the Toyota production system? Oh, okay, so uh, the Toyota production system has been uh, around for many, many decades, but is the, the way that Toyota produce their products and services uh, using a just-in-time way of manufacturing, underpinned by the system they developed known as Kanban, which of course has been adopted, co-opted and, and uh, used as in inspiration in some of the agile ways of working that use the word Kanban. So the Toyota production system is Toyota's way of working. The Toyota way is the philosophy around that way of working. The Toyota way was originally written in 2001, ironically the same year as the Agile Manifesto was published, no connection mm -hmm. between them. But very similarly, the Agile Manifesto is a philosophy and uh, so is the Toyota way. It's the philosophy and principles and values of Toyota. Uh, but the Toyota production system is how we actually do the work. Yeah. Okay, so this goes back to, I, th I think, the 50s, right? Uh, well, yeah, you, you're sort of looking at post-World War II. Uh, the company yeah. goes back, predates World War II, but the Toyota production system was actually originally known as the flow production system. Uh, ironically, that was some of the research we did recently when writing the new book. Um, and we found the, that this is cited from Toyota's own published books. So this is, this is uh, provable as a fact. Um, but what happened was Toyota in post-World War Japan were looking at ways to be cost competitive, to break into the, the US market of auto, with automotive sales and production. And they needed to find ways to cut costs and to be more effective, more efficient. And that was the birth of things like Just In Time, which came from the son of the founder of the company, a guy by the name of Kichiro Toyoda, uh, the founder being Sakichi Toyoda. So one of the key principles is Just In Time production. And that was the beginning, the birthing of what eventually became known as the Toyota production system. Yeah. Just to give a, a little bit of context, um, adding up to what you said. so. 
that the, the ultimate goal of this production system is to uh, try to improve productivity, so reduce costs or waste, whatever kind of waste. And this goes back to Japanese principles such as Kaizen or, or Muda, Muda is waste. And things like JIT, as we call it, so just in time, is just to avoid those kind of waste, right? Yeah, so the Muda is a word that we translate badly as waste. Uh, but it basically means uselessness or futility or pointlessness. And the better translation of Muda for uh, Westerners is non-value-added activity. So we're trying to eliminate anything that doesn't add value to the process of creating the product or service. Just in time is a mechanism in which we ensure that we don't make, create or purchase things until we actually need them. And when we do make or create or purchase things, we only obtain them in the quantity that we need at the time we need it, at the point we need it. In other words, just in time. That's the basic principle to help us yeah. eliminate any unused inventory or any uh, pointless work or any un uh, non-value added activity. And if people are thinking about it in an office context, in the in the sort of non-manufacturing context, uh, anything you do, which is a process within an organization, be it contracts, paperwork, software development, whatever it might be, you need to be constantly looking for things that you do that are pointless and do not add any value. And that's what we'd consider waste. And we look to eliminate that waste. That's one of the core underpinnings. And actually, the key architect of the Toyota production system, Taiichi Ono, said the fundamental doctrine of the Toyota production system is the complete elimination of waste. And that's a quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big challenge, complete elimination. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> all right. So we know all these words that we have here on the episode title are buzzwords. So the lean, the nimble, the agile. So we really want to know, in your opinion, what is the real meaning besides the word lean, nimble and agile? So I describe lean as having no tools. I describe lean as only being behaviors. And in fact, a lot of the work I'm doing now is leading us to understand that a lot of the things that we do, a lot of the challenges we have in change initiatives within organizations, whatever you may call them, a lean and agile transformation or something else, are actually behavior. They're not a methodology issue. We don't, we, we've got lots, we've got hundreds of methods and tools and techniques and approaches, but what is the overriding factor is our behavior. So when I talk about lean, we have that definition from Toyota about the total elimination of waste or non-value added activity. But more so than that, to achieve that, it's about our behaviors. It's about how we act and behave, which allows us to accomplish the philosophical underpinnings of Toyota, um, such as the elimination of waste and just-in-time production. We have to change how we behave. And actually, in the teachings of the Toyota production system, there are some techniques, but predominantly it's about our behavior. We're taught a different way to act, a different way to behave, and that's how we achieve the outcomes we want from the underpinnings of lean philosophy encapsulated in the Toyota production system and the Toyota way. Now, agile, for me is very simple. It really is about making faster decisions and implementing them more uh, effectively, more rapidly. So when we talk about business agility, we talk about the ability of an organization 
to make change, to decide and change direction, pivot, whatever word you want to use, based upon external pressures, external triggers, external events, geopolitical events, financial triggers such as interest rates or, uh, you know, the decline in when we head towards recessionary trends, which is a, a fear for 2024. Um, and so with business agility is the ability for the company to change direction rapidly based on those triggers and events. Now, from a product agility point of view, it's how fast can you iterate, change your product or service? We just saw the new Tesla Cybertruck launch yesterday at the time of this recording, and uh, it's taken him four years to bring it to market. And everybody thinks Tesla do things in five minutes. Well, the proof is it still took him four years, which is the typical time to bring a new model of vehicle to the market. Even Toyota work on those four year cycles typically. So how fast can you change your product? So he launches this new product and he gets feedback from the market as people start to consume the product. How fast can he change the features, functions, capabilities of that product, not just with over the air software updates, but other things to, to uh, meet the demands and the changing desires of the customer. Now with a digital product, that's easy. You click a couple of keys on a, a computer screen or on a keyboard and you can update the software. But that's product agility. How fast can you iterate and change it to meet the market desires? Then you've got your team agility, which is how able is the team to respond to new requirements, emerging requirements, the unknowns that occur naturally within the life cycle of product development or software development with, or whatever the, the, the work is within a company context. How able is the team to respond rapidly to that? And that's more about behaviors and some techniques that are taught. And finally, at an individual level, how able are you or willing are you to be flexible, adaptable in your ways of working, your approach in supporting your colleagues, your teams, the company? How fixed and rigid are you versus how willing are you to change and change rapidly and be adaptable? So that's how I define agility. Okay. So it's a lot more about being able to change as the conditions change around us rather than fast without looking at what value are we delivering right well yeah i mean you you have to be constantly aware of your context you have to be constantly aware of your environment it's something we call situational awareness uh, you have to be constantly sense making or making sense of your environment there's a number of tools and techniques to enable you to do that and you're looking for what we call weak signals in something we call weak signal detection And so you're having to constantly understand your landscape, your environment, to include your customers, your current context. And as things change, your context will shift and change. And then you need to be continuously adapting your methods and approaches and behaviors and your tooling, as well as your, as I say, your behaviors in, in, in being able to make decisions rapidly, change direction quickly, respond to those inputs and triggers, however they are, and as the context is shifting so that's how you achieve a state of agility agile is just some values and principles they're perfectly adequate they're perfectly good uh, they were written in 2001 by 17 men so there's a little bit of a, a funny diversity question there written and it's a philosophy and people can choose to align to that philosophy but if you want to make the philosophy a reality you have to change how you act and behave. 
the ways of working is part of your actions and your behaviors and there are many methodologies out there and tools and techniques that you might find useful in your context but it's predominantly about changing the way you act and behave if you want to align to a certain philosophy okay all right so deeping dive on the agile so you are very well known <laughs> for your statements about doing fake agile and having bullshit uh, agile jobs and this is something you mentioned the last time you were here in lisbon and uh, well some people were shocked <laughs> but there's something behind why you say these things so can you please let us know about that and why do we need to understand that organizations some of the organizations are not ready for these concepts and this change yeah and it's funny to say shocked i think there's a lot of giggles in the audience but uh, <laughs> my i took the inspiration from that talk from a professor called david graber unfortunately he's no longer with us but he'd written some papers in years gone by and then eventually a book on bullshit jobs and it was entitled bullshit jobs and it's highly recommended to read um he'd looked at it more from a social construct and more about society and and, and some of the challenges in government and, and various other things creating these these jobs that produce no value we talk about waste and non-value added activity he wrote a lot about how businesses and organizations and governments create roles and jobs that produce nothing other than to sustain their own survival they have no value to the customer or consumer so when i when i start to look at this from a an agile perspective you could go even beyond agile i used agile because it was a conference focused on the world agility forum so of course agile was the topic but what we've seen and what we're seeing happen we're seeing a lot of people being made redundant they're losing their jobs right now in the us right now this week people are are finishing off and preparing to to leave their jobs at the christmas period the christmas holidays and won't be going back because their companies and i will you know paraphrase here but they no longer they've just laid one company's just laid off some scrum masters Mm -hmm. and they have determined they no longer see value in the scrum master role and so what's happened is over the last sort of few years companies have gravitated towards um, these change initiatives based upon large frameworks scaled agile and others and as a result of that they've spent millions of dollars on training millions of euros on training they have created these roles both agile coaches scrum masters product owners and even other roles as well that are requested of them but yeah. these frameworks and these methods and these approaches force change they expect or require change to occur because the current ways of working or the previous ways of working are incompatible with these new frameworks and techniques based upon agile ways of working so they go and train all these people they create all these roles because these methodologies say we need to create these roles scrum master product owner release train engineer a bunch of other names that are out there mm -hmm. but then the companies fail to make the required changes they fail to change their ways of working to adopt these new methods these new techniques these new approach, new approaches so the roles that are put in place particularly coaches and scrum masters to coach guide mentor and enable these methods to work end up not being able to be functional they can't coach these 
is either just not following these methods or they're resisting them or pushing back or not willing to make the changes that these methods and these teachings and these techniques desire them to make. Simple things like changing the funding model from funding projects to funding people, in other words, funding fixed capacity. That yeah. type of change and moving away from matrix management, time slicing people on multiple projects to dedicating resources to a value stream which are fully funded, fully staffed with all the skills, knowledge and abilities necessary to deliver the value. So companies are failing to make these changes. So these roles become non-value added. And in David Graeber's words within his books, these become bullshit jobs because the agile is really fake agile or these methods that they, they say they're following, they, they're not actually following them. And yeah. why is this? Because the companies, especially large organizations, are very large hierarchical organizations. We build these empires, these towers of power, what we call islands of disconnected efforts. So companies tend to build large hierarchies in big silos, these vertical yeah. structures, and then they build their own power structures. And the people who lead these don't want to give up that power. They don't want to cede that power. They absolutely. Oh, I heard a strange noise, but I'll carry on. So they don't want to cede that power. They want to keep control of these organizational units. And then the collaboration between these organizational units is usually quite poor. They don't invest the time and effort and the amount of training and coaching necessary to find more effective ways of working with each other. And so the organizations themselves aren't configured for this change to happen. And then the change doesn't get implemented. And then the roles that are being created become fake or just non-value added. And as I say, I use the terminology from the book, Bullshit Jobs, which adequately describes the condition that these poor souls find themselves in. And it's not the fault of the people in the roles. That's the most important thing to say. It's not the folks who are scrum masters or agile coaches that are to blame. Yeah. It's the companies and organizations and the cons these large consulting houses that have created a system which cannot function. And so these roles are unable to function. And so guess what? When it comes to cost reduction, they're eliminating these roles rapidly, which then leaves these people now considering what their resume should say, because there's no longer the jobs going to be available in, in quantity, at least in the part of the world where I live, uh, yeah. as traditional scrum masters and agile coaches because most companies are realizing that these methodologies, these frameworks that they've implemented aren't delivering the benefits they expected because the organization isn't configured to be able to deliver that effectively. Yes, I'm, I absolutely agree on this topic in terms of these large empires, as you mentioned. So sometimes it's so hard to drive change from within that it needs to be sourced elsewhere. And that's why uh, people go for, for example, safe consultants. And it's sometimes easier to say top down kind of a mandate that now we are implemented X framework and we have these consultants to help us out. But of course, it's much difficult than on the ground to have everyone on board with that because it's a mandate, right? Yeah, um, the, 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 the key thing about that is what's happening with companies, and I'm talking about the leadership, the, the senior executives in companies, what they're doing is that they desire change, but they don't want to change themselves. And that, that's a real 
issue we see yeah. the amount the participation and the engagement of these senior executives who call themselves leaders they're not willing to change themselves and actually lead the change and become engaged in the change so they outsource this they bring in the big consulting houses the deloitte's the Accentures, the baines the bcgs a whole bunch of these different folks and they don't just outsource the work they outsource the ownership the accountability for doing yeah. this but then what happens these consulting houses don't actually have the power to change how a company operates so they try and force fit a framework a set of methods a way of working into an organizational context that isn't willing or hasn't made the effort to actually change we're just you know we're just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, the, the, the end result is the same. We're just changing the labels. We're just renaming, you know, program managers to release train engineers and delivery managers to scrum masters, but we're not actually changing what they do. And yeah. the leadership are refusing or just for reasons known better themselves, not getting involved, not willing to participate, not willing to engage. And so what happens is the change isn't successful and as i say these roles then get seen as non-value added and then the company starts looking for cost savings especially at the end of the financial year in the us that's the end of december uh, and they yeah. start looking well these people aren't really doing much we don't seem to really need them they don't seem to provide any value let's cut them and cut the costs um, and then, of course, they continue falling back into their previous ways of working and they just continue. But they, they've relabeled everything. There's new name tags, um, but nothing's really changed. And when we look at things like Scaled Agile, and I am a, a critic of Scaled Agile, what that does is bring what I call waterfall. So it, they, it, it enables the continuation of their previous ways of working with program management offices and what do they call them now? Program value offices or some other nonsense that they're talking about now. Um, and basically they continue working the same way. They just relabel things and it just brings a bit of discipline and structure to their previous ways of working, but nothing yeah. really changed. Yes, so it's kind of getting renamed, but it's the same in, in source but sometimes for companies that are so deorganized it's a way to bring structure so it's something that was done in xyz company big ones typically so we want to do the same because now it's trendy ah, <laughs> right? but now you're getting into what's called case case-based approaches so we have a case study it worked really well in this petrochemical company so in this hospital it will work the same and that's just nonsense because the context shifts so there's a concept of what's called bounded applicability and without trying to bore everybody to death the simple explanation you have a hammer and a toothbrush they're both very good tools they have great utility but you don't want to confuse them or mix them up you don't want to brush your teeth with a hammer because that's going to result in pain and if you try and hammer a nail in using a toothbrush it's going to result in pain so the context determines the tools the methods the techniques that we need to use within you're in within an organization so if you're running a bank it's a very different context than if you're running a manufacturing company so just yeah. because the case study was brilliant in the manufacturing company doesn't mean you can transplant that exact method and that approach into a bank because the context is different the tools all have utility but they have what is known as bounded applicability a limit to their usefulness 
Yes, and and even if it's, for example, the same uh, case, but within within another bank, still needs to be tailored to their own reality. Yeah, because the people, the culture, the products, the services, the ways of working, the policies, the the uh, the vendor management, the the procurement, the legal frameworks, all the different aspects will differ between different banks, even in exactly the same industry like banking. They yeah. may be selling similar products and services, but the way they function and operate, their environment, their culture is unique in their context. So the way we do interventions and nudges, which we prefer to use these words than, than change initiatives or uh, transformation, the word transformation is just the wrong word, but we, the way we intervene and the way we do the nudges and, and help uh, drive gentle change within an organization will vary based upon the people, the attitudes, the behaviors, the policies, the rules, how the system functions and anything unique to that context. And that's why just taking a one-size-fits-all universal framework and slapping it in doesn't work. And we're seeing that now. I was just told the other day that Volvo have kicked out safe. Safe is no longer allowed. You're not even allowed to say the word safe in Volvo. And Volvo are now developing their own way of working. They've tried these frameworks, they've realized they don't work, and they've actually got rid of all their safe consultants and safe roles, uh, bullshit jobs and yeah. uh, they're now developing their own way of working based on their own experiences and what they've learned over the last few years and that's the correct approach you need to take your context look at what it is your your challenges are your problems are properly define those and then choose the methods and techniques that best fit your context at that point in time and as the context evolves as it will over time as things change and new methods and learning and products emerge then we shift the ways of working based upon that evolving context and that's evolution and that's how we evolve our products and services how we avoid, uh, evolve our methods and techniques and as we move from legacy type tools or products into the digital aspects we move and evolve the way we do these things and just trying to follow a simple methodology or a simple prescription from a framework is never going to work and the irony with scaled agile it's supposed to be agile but it's actually the, the antithesis of that is very fixed and dogmatic and it's extremely inflexible and once you move away from that framework and start doing things your own way then you no longer need the framework mm -hmm. that temporary scaffolding needs to be removed and you're no longer using safe so when companies de determine they're using safe they're either following a very prescriptive way of working but if they've moved away from that they're no longer doing safe they're doing something else and as I say in the, the context of Volvo they have now uh, I've been told by industry insiders they've now uh, moved away completely from scaled agile and are finding their own way and that is my advice to all companies to all companies yeah that leads me to the next question that is if the companies want to do that so what are the top tips that you would give managers and leaders um, to implement this uh, lean agile ways on their own reality and foster a nimble culture already knowing that unfortunately sometimes there are crystallized roles and people and ways of seeing things that are not uh, being fostering change yeah i mean look the first thing is and and this is the the topic I, I'm talking about as well at the moment is badly defined or what we call ill-defined problems. 
So before you do anything, you need to take the page out of the Toyota Behavior Manual, which is, and I made up that phrase, by the way, but take a, a tip out of the way Toyota act and behave and go to Gemba. Gemba is the, the actual place the work is done. It translates the actual place, the real place. Um, and actually go and study the way you get work done. There are tools and techniques to help you with this, of course. But unless you truly understand how the work is done, and I don't just mean at a high-level view, a helicopter view of the things you do, but how do we do it day to day? How do all the processes work? How do all the departments talk to each other and interact and collaborate? Unless you truly understand that, you don't actually know what the problem is. You might see the results at the end of the, the piece of work or the way your business is running. You may see that profits are down, revenue is down, costs are up, you're losing good staff or you're not attracting new good staff or you're losing customers or customers are unhappy with your products and services or not buying more products and services from you. But these are outcomes, these are results. You may see them as problems, but they're actually a result of how you do the work you do today. So if you don't like those results, you truly need to understand why those results are occurring. How do you do the work you do? How do you operate? And you need to let, know that at a detailed level. And when you understand that, you can start to determine what the problems are that are causing those results, those outcomes to occur. And that's what we call in, in, you know, in Toyota language or in lean language going to Gemba, which is to really go and understand the problems without assumption and to take action by truly understanding how we do the work. And this means that leaders need to change their behaviors. They can't manage from the boardroom. They have to manage from where the work is done, the Gemba. And this means they have to be participatory, they have to be engaged, they have to change how they act. This is not about getting a PowerPoint deck or an Excel spreadsheet on a Friday, mo Friday morning or a Monday morning to review and then send out your orders through your, through your uh, direct reports. This is about becoming fully engaged and understanding what needs to change and then leading the behavior change by modifying and changing and adapting your own behaviors to set an example because leadership is about setting examples, acting and behaving as you wish others to act and behave, not acting and behaving differently and then telling other people to, to lead or act in a different way than you are. So we need to create the environment, that culture of behavioral change and that's the biggest advice I would give to leaders and if they're not prepared to do that, then the change initiatives they implement are always going to fail and are only ever going to yield small benefits for a short temporary period of time. I just got an email from Zoom today uh, and they're putting the cost of my Zoom plan up by 10 bucks, uh, $10 a year. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I'm, this is a pattern we're seeing throughout the industries that the short term yeah. problem is they're losing money or they're not making enough money. So let's just put up the price to the customer rather than go back into the company and understand why they're losing money, why their costs are out of control and actually fixing that problem. All they're doing is putting the price up to the customer. Verizon did it recently. And after 12 years, I moved from Verizon to T-Mobile. I wrote a post about this the other day on LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. these are the types of tips that leaders need to think. They need to actually lead and actually get engaged and actually modify how they act and behave 
to model that that uh, model of behavior for the rest of the organization so the rest of the organization has a role model in which to follow and mirror their behavior throughout the chain okay so we need to walk the talk and the walk needs to be on the gamba yeah you you said it, you said it a lot more succinctly than me <laughs> Okay, that's and we need to have in mind that that usually seems simple, but it's a lot of work. So for leadership positions, that well, they have their own uh, things to do, like uh, draw the vision, etc. Have the KPIs um, at the right level, understand what the market is doing, etc. But this is something that takes time and takes the right mindset that the leaders need to be. Uh, aware of because yeah. and part of that you know yeah. is unless they really understand their business at that really detailed level they may be setting the wrong kpis the wrong okrs the wrong strategy um, yeah. and unless they're engaging in in deep conversations with their key customers and key markets they may all again just be playing catch up to their competition rather than identifying the weak signals the competition are missing and identifying opportunities for disruptive innovation and finding key differentiation to be able to innovate and be creative and some of that means talking to the people who do the work for you not just assuming that these people just do what they're told but actually having a conversation with them because that extended network those informal networks within the organization especially in large companies trust me the people nearest the work know more about how things get done than any executive in a boardroom and i tell you that from direct experience in multiple yeah. companies over the last 20 years yeah for sure that's absolutely right and but sometimes it needs to be informal so the informal networks stream up the communication so that the executives and leadership knows what's going on but sometimes I think, in my opinion, it needs to be more formal. So they need to go down and ask questions and understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the behavior they need to, to adopt and model. And it's not yeah. about visiting and just asking inane questions like, how's your day going? It's actually going and, and understanding what the work is, understanding what the challenges are and seeing what you as a leader can do to unblock those challenges um, yeah. and there's various techniques we, we teach and there's various techniques that are out there that people can learn that help them model that as you say in a more formal structured way but informal networks tend to be though those those networks those conversations those communications and connections between different parts of an organization and even in society that there's no formal structure but you can detect and see that these these communications uh, and these sort of uh, interactions that are occurring and there are techniques in the sense making stuff that we talk about that helps you identify those and that's where you find the weak signals that's where you find the things you don't normally see that you do need to see and if you're missing them maybe your competition's seeing them and they're gonna you know steal a march on you they're gonna out compete yeah. you um so that's really where the, the, the people need to spend the time yeah, 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 and sometimes those informal um, also are where the information is more, more unfiltered and raw and can be an opportunity. Yeah, and we sometimes refer to these as dark constraints because we're, these are things that we can see the impact of them, but we don't know why. We can't see what's causing it, but we can see the impact. And that's where 
really you do need to to learn things like sense making and some of the techniques that enable us to find those informal networks uh, understand those dark constraints understand those weak signals and start and, and this is if companies really want to have key differentiators and disrupt the market and be the 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 tesla in their their business world then they need to learn these techniques and they need to change how they behave and they need to stop following the nonsense that's taught taught in a lot of mba programs and a lot of the nonsense that appears in powerpoint decks from major consulting houses by people in nice suits that have never actually done the work ever in their life yeah that's true all right so what we wanted to know to know next is if you could tell us a little bit about the flow system sure um so the flow system really started and just a little bit of backstory for a couple of minutes but the flow system started in from my work that was emerging in toyota as we started to bring together different methods and techniques uh, which we which we now describe as an assembly of methods as we start to bring those together we started to realize that there was it was people were very focused in one area like maybe in management maybe in in complexity maybe they were focused on building great teams or maybe they were focused on just lean methods or agile methods and and what we realized is actually you need to bring all these different disciplines together and people need to have a broad range of knowledge sometimes my uh, uh, friend Dave Snowden calls this expert generalist and so we need people who've got expertise across a broad spectrum of different skills and, and different topics and it's actually the interaction amongst the parts and when we talk about complex adaptive systems and we talk about complex problems there is no simple solution there's no linear causality where we can just say there's the root cause implement this countermeasure and everything is fine and in a complex organizational context we need great teams which is engaged in, in in the topic for team science which is how we build great teams not silly team building exercises escaping yeah. the mummy's curse in some escape room after hours that's great fun but it's not proper team building in the context of your business so we we needed the team science expert uh, the the team science sort of aspects Uh, so we understood team learning and teamwork training and various aspects there how to build high performing teams but at the same time leaders leadership should be teams so there's an interaction between leadership theory and team theories and then within leadership these are the people who are fostering those behaviors those role models they're the people creating the psychological safety these environments to allow innovation and creativity and a safe environment to fail fast learn early so there was a lot of leadership aspects that were necessary and distributed leadership true empowerment what we call leaders intent but then at the same so these things we found that team science and distributed leadership techniques were very much intertwined and interconnected but then we're working in complexity in these complex organizations with complex problems what we call complex adaptive systems and if you want to know what a complex adaptive system is look in the mirror the person staring at back at you is a complex adaptive system <laughs> Yeah. And so there was a necessity to teach these aspects of complexity and some of the techniques and methods around that like weak signal detection sense making looking at things like the Kenevin framework to understand different types of problem and the and the areas within your organization and the context that are in at any given time and we recognize that this this was a coming together of different methods within a given context 
and it was the way you combine those methods and how those methods interact which was important and then you've still got the foundational principles of lean thinking the toyota production system and the toyota way which were still fundamental principles so this became a collection of methods tools techniques approaches and the important bit was understanding how they interacted and within an understanding how to determine your context and how to bring these different methods together in what we call an assembly of methods and we we call that the triple helix of flow or the dna of organizations just some nice ways to describe this mm-hmm. and then as we continue to do the research and with the new book that's out and various other bits that bring this together and the new papers we've written we started then to look at what's known as assemblages theory and really what happens is you bring things together you might get some novelty you might get some magic happen some emergence some fantastic thing that starts to occur that you never thought or never imagined or didn't even think about starts to happen and that's known as an assemblage so really all the flow system is in simple language is we are really trying to we focus on customer value we want customer value um, to be our focus because that's my background with Toyota and I wanted to make sure that uh, we didn't lose that but at the same time what we wanted to do was to provide context relevant actionable practices independent of frameworks we want to teach you how to combine tools in your context to solve your context contextual problems so that's really where the flow system the idea of it was born it was that there wasn't a one size fits all approach there wasn't a guaranteed simple way to do things you needed to look at more than just a single thread like management or agile or lean or whatever and you needed to look at your situation holistically in your context and you needed to have a broad range of knowledge of lots of different ways to solve challenges and to understand how to combine different approaches and methods and tools in your context to help you nudge the system in the right direction how to move forward to iterate forward to improve the the system you're in your environment your your way of working within your context so that's what the flow system achieves and enables it has a focus on the flow of value we have a focus on customer first because that's predominantly my background and my colleagues who work with me to develop this and to write the books they all have the same values that we're we're trying to deliver value for a customer because even peter drucker said decades ago the purpose of a company or the purpose of a firm is to create a customer most organizations for profit organizations are there to serve the needs of a customer and that need is delivered in what we can the container we call value but even in a non-profit context an ngo or something like that they're still delivering some value to somebody who wants to consume that value and if that value is no longer perceived as value by the consumer then they have no reason to exist and you see that with famous failures of companies like Nokia and Blockbuster and others where suddenly the customer perceived there was no value in their products or services and those companies ceased to exist so we still focus on delivering that value but this is a framework free context focused way of thinking 
and and there are no one size fits all solutions there are no prescriptions yeah. which is both its strength and its weakness because organizations want a simple recipe but what we're saying there isn't a simple recipe and if you actually build your own way and you have this broader range of understanding more holistically you'll actually be more successful and of course the companies we're working with who are trying this now are finding greater success than the ones that have been following a prescriptive framework in the past okay and in the flow system will we find um tips or um, something to help out understanding what does the customer perceive as value and what are the how can we break down concepts such as complexity yes so i mean the last two and a half years um not full time but a lot of the time we've spent putting out the new book the flow system playbook and it's available on amazon and kindle and, and soon apple books and various other formats um but the idea was was to actually the, the first book we wrote was more of a theory and the the more academic sort of book which was a difficult read but there was reasons it had to be written that way to to be peer reviewed and to get acceptance by the wider scientific and academic communities and given one of my 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 key co-author and business partner is a is a real professor then it had to have certain level of academic rigor but it wasn't the easiest book for practitioners to pick up and figure out how to use this so what we did we wrote the new book which is the practitioner's guide and there's a couple of tips for anybody who might have that book start by reading the pre the preface and the introduction and the first section on lean thinking then read the introduction to the three primary sections on complexity thinking distributed leadership team science and then read the conclusion that's probably three hours of reading in total and at that point you'll have a good understanding of what we're trying to present to you and what we've given you and then within the book there are uh, more than 33 methods covered each of the methods are explained each of the sections have a worksheet which helps you learn or implement or teach that method those worksheets are all free of charge there's a QR code on them you can scan them it takes you to the website where you can download a PDF of that section of the book and use it free of charge in your own learning and development and so mm -hmm. the book is really a practitioner's guide to teach you the methods, give you hints and tips, teach you how those methods interact. We've worked with Dave Snowden and the Kenevin Company to develop a new tool called Hexi, H-E-X-I, like hexagon. And that tool is also free of charge to download from the website. And that's a, a tool which there'll be some uh, commercial kits available if you don't want to make your own, if you don't like doing a bit of crafting. But basically, that tool allows you to work in workshops or with small groups to try and experiment about which methods, which techniques might be useful to you in your context to go and do those experiments and then to come back and reflect on how you'd assembled these methods in your context and maybe add or remove or change or even write your own methods on some blanks and actually build a way of working for your organization within the context and actually see how that's moving forward and we're working also just as a because it's important with Ivor Jacobson of Ivor Jacobson International on a platform called TeamSpace which is part of the Essence uh, standard. Essence is a standard that codifies various methods and approaches using a standard visual uh, technique 
And then TeamSpace is a digital tool which allows you to do very similar to what I just described with the Hexi tool. And that will be coming available in the near future. And there will be a free version for individual practitioners as well as enterprise versions for companies to be able to use at scale. So this is the way we're moving into a context-specific, framework-free way of being able to build an experiment and the playbook that we produce i hope will provide a lot of those hints and tips and explanations and help help practitioners and organizations and coaches to establish a much more holistic broad range of expertise that'll help companies develop their own ways and free themselves from these restrictive and expensive frameworks and these pointless certification training courses Okay, that's great. Thanks, Nigel. So, for the reading suggestion, that is our next uh, topic on the agenda. I think I have uh, an idea of what you want to share with us, right? Yeah, go ahead. So, I would say it's going to be the flow system book and all of ah. the materials you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I wrote, you know, I was really keen that this book got written. Uh, myself and John spent a ton of time writing it putting it together trust me writing books is not a way to make money and it's uh, there's a lot better ways to enjoy your life but i felt it was really important the new book's got 400 uh, images in their pictures slides basically that explain these things visually as well as the worksheets there's 41 worksheets um but the book's available on amazon um as i say various other ways you can find it very rapidly through google searching um it's not about selling the book it's more about making these things available if there are people out there that don't have the funds and resources if they go to the website getflowtrained.com there is a link to the playbook and in there they'll be able to find all the free resources you don't need to buy the book to get the free resources and that may give you a starter for 10 the flow guide has always been available free free of charge at flowguides.org so people can download that and all the papers the scientific white papers we've published in peer reviewed journals we ensure that they're open access they're not behind any paywalls so if you just go to google scholar and you either search the flow system or my name or john turner professor john turner's name you will find all those uh, white papers and that, that information to help you understand and learn and they're all free of charge and you can download those and use those however you want to okay great 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 all right i will leave on the show notes the links for what you mentioned also for the listeners to consult and now moving on to the portuguese words so usually this is something i ask the guest to choose one but in this case uh, we can do it the other way around as you prefer now nigel so go ahead and let's see what happens okay so my idea would be to if we look at the word agile in portuguese it goes like agile which is quite similar if we google uh, agile in google so the the words that we get are agile itself light fast nimble and swift so this is quite interesting because actually nimble and agile are the same uh word in portuguese that is agile yeah and actually it's a uh, nimble is a synonym for agile anyway so they have exactly yeah. the same meaning but you're seeing fast light 
you know you can add in words like adaptable flexible these are all the uh, the sort of words that describe what we mean by agile of course agile in a physical context has a different meaning you know sports yeah. context than it does in a in a uh, process or methodology or software context um but the better word overall is resilient so yes. we've got two words robust and resilient a robust system or a robust infrastructure is very strong very powerful it resists everything and but when it fails the failure is catastrophic my friend dave snowden often talks about sea defenses so you have these defenses against the ocean they're very strong very powerful but when that one big storm comes in that overwhelms the sea defense the the outcome is catastrophic a resilient system a resilient organization is able to adapt and change rapidly as the environment changes so it's constantly able to resist uh, uh, any impacts or if it is damaged in some way or affected or impacted it can recover rapidly so when we talk about agility we talk about resilience and that's a much better word to use now i have no idea how you translate that in portuguese or whether it even means the <laughs> yeah. same thing it means it does the word does. we prefer to use yeah resilience it's i would say the word of the hour in the podcast so it was chosen by lots of guests and we have two episodes on resilience so one is project endurance and the other one is cognitive resilience And uh, so I would say when I do the retrospective and closing season finale, <laughs> we will have to dig, dig a little bit on resilience because I, I think you're right. And I think you're referring to Delia McCabe in one of your yes. previous shows. And she exactly. is uh, somebody I'd highly recommend the listeners to, to take a listen to that podcast as well. Yes. So thank you, Nigel. Before we close, do we want to share anything else uh, with us? No, I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed participating in it. I hope there's some value in in my rambling and, and sort of uh, uh, wittering that's useful to the listeners. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing is don't let people get you down. I used a fake Latin phrase in the new book, illegitim, illegitim non carborundum, I think is how you pronounce it. I'll let people Google that and get the translation. But, you know, things are hard and that working in these environments are really tough and it doesn't mean you are wrong or failing or incapable or don't have the skills the systems are designed to sustain their survival i often say we've built systems that were there to sustain our survival and now these systems are, are focused on sustaining their survival And the reality of it is most of us, even I, have very little opportunity or ability to change these systems or to fundamentally change them. So it's not you. It's not your fault. Um, just keep focusing on developing your skills, your knowledge, your capabilities, and eventually somebody will value those and you will find those right opportunities to work in an organization within a system where you can affect some positive change. So. Don't let them get you down. Don't give up. Right. Super advice. Thank you for that, Nigel. And so thank you everyone for listening. And of course, reach out uh, with any feedbacks, ideas, if you have questions for me or Nigel. And of course, share and rate the episode if you liked it. And see you soon. Thank you, Nigel. Bye. Bye-bye.